0: How should we live? What things should we do? What things should we not do? These are enormous questions, and it's the domain of metaethics to try to figure out the frameworks by which we answer those questions. Now if you think about what we actually do do, and the way we go about our lives, it's clear that emotion plays a huge role. So it's somewhat surprising that um, it's a bit of a minority view within metaethics that emotions should play a role in determining our actions, and in fact doing that. I guess this week is James Hutton. He's a philosopher at the University of Delft, and he is a philosopher for whom emotions should play that role in uh, ethical decisions. He freely admits that he doesn't have all the answers here. He's still kind of working out his um, ultimate position, I guess. But he does have some excellent intuitions. And one is that um, emotions... Uh, should provide some evidence in developing our moral theories. Rather like we um, use our observations within physics um, to build up theories, our emotional reactions to things are evidence, like a kind of moral compass that points us towards uh, what is right and wrong. And similarly within physics, not only can we use our emotions in in building up our theories, but we can use them to overthrow our theories. And, And this is, for me, is one of the really most beautiful um, points that comes across. He gives a wonderful example of uh, Tolstoy, who witnesses uh, a terrible event. I won't provide too many spoilers here. And just seeing that event and his very strong emotional reaction to it upset Tolstoy's worldview. It, It turned it over. James argues that this capability of emotions to destabilize our beliefs can be really powerful that it can cause us to reassess what we think we know. And I think this is very promising, very hopeful, because we live in a world where beliefs seem to have become very entrenched and it can be very hard to get people agreeing. If emotion can get us to a common place, a common understanding, then I think we should welcome that. So without further ado, I'm James Robinson. My guest is James Hutton. This is Multiverses.
1: (laughs) James Hutton, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm excited to be here. So I want to start by
0: kind of grounding ourselves. Uh, You work within, you you have a particular view about how we acquire moral knowledge. And even the idea of moral knowledge is already a view about the existence of that thing. But before we sort of zone in on that, maybe we can start with the landscape in general, right? What are the different ethical or sort of meta-ethical positions that one can take how, what are the different frameworks for thinking about how we should act big question
1: <laughs> okay right so maybe a good place to start is by thinking about something that we think that we know in the sphere of ethics so we could start with something really boring and, un- un- and uncontroversial like murder is wrong Why don't we go with that? So take the proposition that, or the claim that murder is wrong. I take it that anyone who, if they were faced with a choice between murdering and not murdering, just chose murdering because it was a little bit more convenient rather than feeling that to be a kind of really uh, something to be avoided. We would think that, well, they're missing out on, on, on something that we all know, which is that murder is, is wrong. Well, When you start reflecting on this, an obvious question arises, which is, well, how do we know that murder is wrong? Or that other kinds of conduct are wrong, for example, I don't know, breaking promises unless you have a really good reason, or um, uh, uh, massively polluting a village in order to make a little bit more profit or whatever. How do we know that all of these things that we in fact know to be wrong are wrong? Now, lots of philosophers would question the idea that it really is right to apply the concept of knowledge here and say that we do we do know these ethical claims to be true. and we can maybe return to that in a bit, but if we start with this tempting idea that we really do know certain moral claims to be true, then yeah, well how do we know them? Some of them we know through by kind of reasoning them out as conclusions from other things we know so we might know some general you know the, take the example of polluting a village and and poisoning people well that's an instance of harming people so maybe you know a general principle that unless you've got a really good reason you shouldn't harm people and you know that a particular course of action is going to harm people through pollution well then you can reason uh, to a moral conclusion from that moral premise about harm in general being not something you can do and the facts of the case but then the question arises again where does that kind of premise come from? Where does that principle, your reasoning, come from? So lots of theorists find themselves pushed towards saying, well, not all of our moral knowledge can come from reasoning because reasoning can't go on forever. You need some moral premises to start from or something like that. And as a result of that, philosophers who want to hang on to the idea that we really know stuff in the sphere of morality find themselves appealing to some notion of things kind of intuitively seeming right or wrong. And there's a range of different ways of going with that. One of the most dominant kind of views would be to say that certain principles are just self-evident to reason itself. And philosophers who take that line are going to say, they're going to try and defend a kind of analogy between the axioms of mathematics, perhaps, and the the axioms of ethics. So, for example, the utilitarian philosopher Peter Singer claims that it's simply self-evident that we ought to do the thing that produces the greatest kind of net benefit to people in terms of pleasure or well-being. Now, I think that that appeal to you know, rationally self-evident principles is a little bit unsatisfying. I don't think it can ultimately be upheld, but I nevertheless am confident that we really do know things in terms of ethics. And that's led me to consider different accounts of, of where those starting points for ethics might come from. And in particular, as you mentioned, I've found myself defending the idea that we can know that something's wrong on the basis of an emotional experience that we have.
0: Yeah, that, that, that's a really nice overview. As you say, you, you mentioned at one point, yeah, there's this kind of even the idea that knowledge is possible is is somewhat controversial because that's, or at least it's something that um, there are differences of opinion about about that. And I suppose we can kind of carve up the the landscape along different dimensions. And one is, does one does one believe that that ethical judgments can have the status of, of, of knowledge, that there can be ethical or moral truths. Um, and another is, well, regardless of whether these objects have that status or maybe they're just some kind of, some they have some other normative status, how do we arrive at getting to the right ones? Like what's the justification for those things? Whether you're justifying knowledge or, or truth or whether you're justifying, Something else. And those kind of things perhaps, those dimensions are perhaps somewhat related. They're not perhaps entirely independent in that certain moral positions probably presume, if one is a relativist in terms of moral knowledge, and so one thinks that there is not such a thing as moral knowledge, there are no truths out there, you might be more inclined to a position that says, okay, well, the the way that we justify our beliefs is some sort of societal coherent picture that, you know, shifts over time and, and shifts depending on the culture that you live in. Whereas if you take a more kind of objective stance, you're, you're unlikely to be able to um, maintain that relative picture. Although I think there's probably shades in all of these things and it's not quite as clear cut as I've, I've, I've just stated. The other thing that I think is really interesting, as you say, is that reason, I think whatever standpoint you take, reason has a role in mm-hmm. in in justification. But what's at stake is more the foundations for your reasoning. Yeah. Do you just have a very s- small set of axioms similar to mathematics, as you say? You know, mathematics has what you can axiomatize it or arithmetic in, I don't know, nine axioms or maybe less. So I'm not sure of the number, but. It's very few. Um and and Peter Singer and um and others might argue, well, you can actually axiomize moral philosophy with even fewer. You just need to say that you wanna produce I don't know, the greatest good for the greatest number or maximize pleasure or something like that, and have perhaps even a single axiom. That's right, yeah. Which is yeah. There's 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 appealing simplicity to that. Um of course The complexity that's hidden is then you have to crank through lots and lots of calculations, right? To try to figure out, um, you know, the consequences of every action. And then there's um, other systems, I guess, more kind of moral empiricist systems where you are kind of digging out moral knowledge. And if I understand rightly, you wouldn't necessarily be able to kind of discover empirically, you're not beholden to discover empirically every moral judgment or every justify everything through a kind of empirical discovery you can sort of discover bits and pieces and then use reason to bring everything together Uh, so you have kind of like some landmarks right which or which you can think of as kind of primitives in the same way as we think of like physical facts as not so much as primitives but things that are independent of us but they're not the whole story all right you have a whole collection of physical facts and you can join them together to build a, a picture of the world using reason. We've mentioned um, emotion. So h- how does that fit into the picture? This seems very antithetical to kind of reason. So h- how can emotion help us get towards moral knowledge?
1: Right. That's, that's, a, that's a good question. Okay. So yeah, this, this antithesis between reason and emotion is something that theorists of emotion um, and people in various different disciplines have begun to question in, in the in the last few decades. But so I think we can certainly draw a distinction between emotion and the process of reasoning. So reasoning or kind of inferring a conclusion from some premises. So that's, you know, maybe the best way to explain that is through examples. So I suggested something earlier where we might have a the principle that we should do no harm and then some facts about the case, and then we just kind of put those together and, and and we kind of reason through that if those premises are true, then the conclusion must be true that in this case, it's wrong to pollute the village. Now, emotion doesn't work like that. So think about a different kind of case. And so maybe we can take an example from the philosopher Amiya Srinivasan. So she has a paper from a few years ago called Radical Externalism that was published in the Philosophical Review, which is one of the most kind of prestigious journals in the discipline. And Amiya Srinivasan, who's now um, uh, a professor in Oxford, um, she gives the following example. Maybe I can just read it out if that sounds all right. So she says, consider the following case. Noor, a young British woman of Arab descent is invited to dinner at the home of a white friend from university. The host, Noor's friend's father is polite and welcoming to Noor. He is generous with the food and wine and asks Noor a series series of questions about herself. Everyone laughs and talks amiably. As Noor comes away, however, she is unable to shake the conviction that her friend's father is racist against Arabs. But replaying the evening in her head, she finds it impossible to recover just what actions on the host's part could be thought to be racist or what could justify her belief in the host's racism. If pressed, Noor would say she just knows that her host is racist. And then Srinivasan goes on to specify that in fact the host is racist. He thinks of Arabs as inherently fanatical, dangerous and backward and as a result sent off subtle cues that Noor subconsciously registered and processed. It is this subconscious sensitivity that led to Noor's belief that her host is racist. So think about this example. So and I think that there are lots of everyday cases that are like this where we we make a judgment that you know someone's being an asshole or someone's being rude or someone's being duplicitous or whatever. And we can't really put our finger on what it is about their conduct that makes us think that there's something morally suspect going on here. I mean, you might think that in those cases where you can't point to the facts of the case, you, don't, you can't really be said to know that they're doing something wrong. But there, it is tempting, at least, to say that well, even if it's 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 a kind of weaker judgment if you can't specify the things that make it wrong. Like some people really are pretty reliable at picking up on when someone's being an asshole. I think we all are actually. We we, we don't necessarily have some kind of principle or set of axioms about what ca- what kind of behaviour means you're being an asshole. We'd f- actually find it really difficult to try and articulate that. It would be a bit more like trying to you know, come up with principles for what makes a film funny or something like that. It's, we, we know it when we see it, but we but we don't have a set of principles that we can reason from. So yeah, there's there's this question, do we really know in cases like that? And what I want to do is say, well, yeah, maybe we do. And then I want to ask what kind of psychological mechanisms are actually in play when we're making those judgments that don't involve Putting a, moral, a pre-existing, pre existing, previously known moral principle together with certain facts that we know. And I think the evidence is that in a case like Noor forming this judgment, she's very likely to be experiencing an emotion in response to these subtle cues. And our emotions, our emotional responses, are shaped through long experience. That we, we learn how to respond to things emotionally from our parents or other guardians when we're little, and our friends in the playground or whatever. Just there's a huge, huge, endless array of experiences that we've had throughout our lives, in kind of things we've experienced for real, films we've watched, books we've read, whatever you name it. We're we're not just gain, gaining information about like how things. Are in the world descriptively, we're also kind of uh, our emotional sense is being refined over time. And someone like Noor, who's you probably chatted with friends about various like ways in which people have been like racist or just belligerent towards them, they've like learned to <laughs> she, she probably through her life has had loads and loads of experiences which have refined her sense of unease, such that such that she feels uneasy and, and starts to think, well, there's something up here in the presence of cues that, well, she can't specify what they are, but there is a pattern there. And she has learned over time to, to pick up on the pattern. So the idea would be that our emotional dispositions may be a feeling of unease. In a more positive case, our feelings of compassion, we can't always give principles for why we feel compassion in a certain case. It's, it's not as if we, first of all, go through a, a very, various steps of reasoning and then and then conclude, oh, I will now feel a feeling of compassion. No, it's something that's elicited to a, from us a little bit, we might say, more automatically, although always remembering that you're responding to informational cues is what the kind of cognitive science of emotion tells us. And as I say, that response is shaped through long experience. So the picture would be as well as reasoning, another tool that we have in our toolbox is these refined emotional senses of, uh, of, of different ethically relevant scenario that occur in our lives. And the picture there would be that, well, when you have that emotion, when you have that feeling of unease, it suggests to you, it kind of seems to you as if something is up here. When you feel outrage, it seems to you if someone, that someone's doing something wrong when you feel compassion, it seems to you that someone is undergoing significant suffering, something like that. And the idea would be, in my view, and this is something I've tried to defend in some of my writing, that we really are entitled kind of in an epistemic sense. We really are, as it is, it is legitimate to, to base the belief that someone's being an asshole or something is up in this situation, these kind of everyday ethical judgments that we're constantly making, that we're in, it really is legitimate to make those judgments on the basis of emotion, all things being equal. Of course, there can be reason, substantive reasons not to trust your emotions in a given case. And I'm not at all saying that our emotions are infallible, but yeah, I, I, I'm trying to say that, as well as this tool that we have of reasoning from principles that we already believe, we've got this other tool of picking up on subtle cues, responding emotionally, and using that to inform our beliefs.
0: yeah, in some ways, it's a very um surprising position, given that you know within the law, for instance, there's very little appeal to emotion, certainly within many domains within the philosophy of meta ethics that we've considered like consequentialism there's just no emotion doesn't enter the picture at all. And again I would say say generally within culture there is this kind of primacy at least Western culture currently a primacy of, of reason over emotion and you know we, we seem very distrustful of our emotions. so so all these things I think kind of um, set one up to be a little bit Distrustful of this idea, and yet, as you say, I mean, this is something that we all experience, and we probably do trust our emotions more than we will own up to, right? (laughs) I'm I'm sure we trust them almost completely. You know, perhaps slightly more than we ought to, as you said. Sometimes our emotions are are fallible, but certainly on a daily basis, this is we make many, perhaps most of our decisions emotionally. And it's somewhat refreshing to think that this this might be the right way of acting. I have to say, but I think people will also, you know, feel a little bit suspicious of this example. You know, it's been set up so that Nur was correct, right? And we'll probably have all felt instances in our lives where we've got it wrong. We've made a judgment about someone, and we later realize uh, we were incorrect. And I, you know, from personal experience, often those are about people from other cultures mm-hmm. because just the kind of standard operating mode of behavior, let's say, is quite different. And someone, for example, might seem quite standoffish, not necessarily an arsehole, but just not a fun person to hang around with and maybe not someone who just seems a little bit, I don't know, shifty or not really un- helpful to you or whatever. But then you you realize that that's just a particular way of presenting that oftentimes is very culturally Dependent, so I sort of I want to buy in, yeah, <laughs> but I I struggle with things like that. And one final comment: you mentioned this kind of process of emotional of um, refinement, and, and that seems important. And perhaps you know our getting things wrong is is part of that process. That suggests, though, that this kind of emotional moral compass, perhaps. Is not something that's completely innate, or maybe it is, but needs some kind of configuration or um, uh, calibration, let's say, as we go through life. And I'm interested in your opinions as to whether this, you know, are we discovering, are we discovering something about society, the society within which we find ourselves, and learning from the the, the cues from others as to what is right or wrong. And is that calibrating our moral compass, or are we somehow tuning in on something that's deeper and and more constant, and does reflect an ob- objective um, state of the
1: world or truth? Right. Yes. So, one thing to begin with, perhaps. So, yeah, Srinivasan's example is set up in such a way that, well, we're told we get to peek behind the curtain. Srinivasan's kind of. Describing this from a third person standpoint and saying like, well, yeah, the facts of the case are that this person is racist and was sending off cues. Real life cases are usually not like that, but let me give you a real life case that was described by the neuroscientist Antonio Damasio, which will hopefully Mm. help to help to um, bring you on board even more. So Damasio in 1994 published this great book called Descartes' Error. And the, the aim there was really, this, this was part of of what I described earlier, that this move across a, a range of different disciplines of trying to attack this sharp distinction between reason and emotion, where reason is construed as the thing that should always be in control. And emotion is just this disruptive thing that we'd be better off without. So Damasio is trying to attack that picture somewhat unfairly. He chooses René Descartes as his target in the title of the book. Um, some listeners might be aware that René Descartes actually wrote a late book called The Passions of the Soul, which which is very um, amenable to the idea that emotions are central to, to our moral lives. But let's leave that to one side. But anyway, so Damasio, one of the, the things that he does in that book is he describes some of his experience with people with different kinds of neurological damage. And there's this one guy who he just gives the initials, I forget what they are, but there's this guy who's kind of been extremely successful in his life and He has like a healthy marriage, but then he suffers some brain damage. This is happening kind of in the early nineties. So they're able to perform an an MRI scan and figure out what kind of damage has happened. His ventromedial prefrontal cortex has been damaged. And Damasio builds this really impressive case that the ventromedial prefrontal cortex is central to um, our emotional lives. So what happens if you have damage to this part of your brain and your emotional functioning is impaired? So interestingly, this patient does perfectly well on IQ tests, is perfectly good at memory and can see fine and all of that kind of thing. So lots of these kind of non-emotional cognitive capacities are unimpaired, which suggests that, um, you know, maybe we were right. Maybe we were right to distinguish between reason and emotion. You can do fine even if your emotions are knocked out. But he has all sorts of problems in his practical life. He really struggles to make decisions and not just kind of like big life decisions. He finds himself just paralyzed in the morning. He's supposed to be getting ready for work, but he just is unable to keep himself focused on the task of making those like rudimentary decisions we need, we need to make about like what to, have, to break, have for breakfast, you know, whether to brush your teeth before having breakfast or after. Due to this emotional impairment, uh, this patient finds himself completely unable to navigate those like value trade-offs that we're constantly making in life. He's unable to orient his decisions around which things matter. And so, yeah, Damasio makes this great case for this broader theory in which emotions serve to kind of... They're our signals for which things matter that orient us in our decision-making. And without emotion... We're really, we're really lost, and he gives some interesting clinical evidence for that. Now, something yeah, it, else that really you, seems that you to, said was, uh,
0: sorry, yeah, I had a slight uh, slowness in my connection, possibly my brain as well, so <laughs> I wasn't trying <laughs> to jump in. But uh, yeah, no, it's it, it. It seems like the perfect illustration of Hume's very famous, perhaps overquoted, you know, the reasons are and ought to be the, the slave of the, the passions, right? And the other thing that this example, I think, um, illustrates, and it's quite an important point, is that ethics is not just about murder or about (laughs) climate change and big things. It's just just about how we live our lives, right? It's about the right way of living. And that includes decisions you take on the most prosaic of things, like what to have for breakfast. And this morning, I was thinking, well, should I go to the beach today? It's a... (laughs) And I was like, well, I could do a bit more preparation for this podcast, but but it's also really sunny and it's a beautiful day and it feels kind of wrong to waste that. I'm here in Scotland. It doesn't happen so often. And so I was like, you know, you have this kind of, <laughs> it, it is a mini ethical decision. So yeah, really interesting to hear that knocking out that center in the brain uh, has that kind of almost paralyzing effect on, on one's decision-making ability
1: yeah yeah absolutely so yeah i, I think that that's that's right we, we sometimes fall into this trap of thinking that ethical decisions are, are just the really big ones you know things like you know should i should i go vegan or not but of course the ethical decisions are also like should i cancel on my friend because i'm feeling a bit knackered or should i make the effort like it's like, do I really owe it to them? that kind of thing. We're, we're constantly managing these things. we're constantly making decisions on the basis of not just what we want to do, but our concern for other people's interests, well-being and and, and the things that we think really matter in life. So yeah, I think that we should be bearing in mind that that, that those are those are as legitimate and important ethical decisions as the, the big ones like should animals be giving given legal standing and um, uh, should. Should, should we mine lithium from the ocean floor if that means reducing carbon emissions but destroying ecosystems? You know, I'm, I'm fascinated with those big ethical questions. And in my research, that's something that you know, I'm beginning to probe a little bit more. But I do think that we need to stay in touch with the, the everyday experience of morality, which is just kind of very pervasive.
0: I mean, I think it makes a really strong case that emotions are a part of our everyday ethical practice whether they should be or there's a better way right is 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 another question or 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 perhaps better put to what extent should they be a part of
1: our ethical decision making i don't know <laughs> so maybe one way of, of 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 approaching the question which i tried to hint at at the beginning was um well if not emotion then what so I think that as I've said that there's, you know, often we're in a position where we could use reasoning, but not always, right? We don't always have a principle in our pocket that we can apply to the case in hand. So without some kind of intuitive sense of what's the right thing to do in a given situation, we're often just going to be paralyzed. The other issue about that is where do the principles come from? So yeah, you might think that, that reasoning is more reliable than emotion when we can use reasoning but as as i sketched before like we we need to get those principles from somewhere your mm-hmm. your the principles that you find plausible that's of course going to be influenced by the culture you grow up in just as much as your emotions are going to be sh- shaped by your culture and sometimes they're going to come into conflict so in one of my uh, papers that's currently under review i use this example of leo tolstoy witnessing an execution so um would you like me to yeah, go um, into that a little bit to illustrate this
0: yeah yeah i and um yeah i really love this example
1: uh, thanks for sharing the, the 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 preprint yeah please this is a it's a beautiful quote so in so tolstoy towards the end of his life writes this autobiographical story called a confession and i'd really recommend it it's quite short you can read it quite you know it doesn't take too long um but it's really fascinating And one thing that happens early in the story is he's kind of telling, telling us about his intellectual development. So when he was a young man, he sat around among high society in St. Petersburg, apparently with all of these literary intellectual friends of his. And he was very taken with this like uh, lively intellectual life. And among the people there, they, they, you know, they'd have the kind of student discussions that people have, you know, like. Uh, of the hot topics of the day. So, people today are probably like, ask, you know, students right now are probably staying up till 3 a.m. discussing whether ChatGPT is sentient or not. People in the 1800s stayed up all night discussing whether Napoleon was a great man or was evil, and discussing whether uh, execution was something that was permitted if it was uh, a force for social progress. And Tolstoy and his friends were really tempted by this this idea where progress is important, where you know. They're, so they're living in the century. So in the seventeen hundreds, we've had all of this social turmoil. We've had the French Revolution. We've had the American War of Independence. We've had people throwing off monarchy and erecting societies on the basis of what they think, are you know, principles of human rights, things like that. So Tolstoy and his friends, when he's a young man, get really kind of, they're they're really compelled, they're really convinced by this theory where where social progress is what matters. We need to find a way of driving the evolution of society forward, kind of by whatever means necessary. And one thing that Tolstoy comes to believe amidst all of this is that execution is indeed justified. So, you know, that's going to be, if, if you're, you know, discussing the pros and cons of the French Revolution with your, with your intellectual friends, then this is this is going to be at the forefront of your mind. You're going to be asking, was it okay to execute the, the 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 French monarchs as a kind of tool for social progress? You know, the assumption being that if you didn't execute them at some point, they'd use their. Their vast resources and their networks of cronies around Europe to, to, to drag society back. So, yeah, Tolstoy thinks that um, execution is essentially something that's, you know, not something to do willy nilly, but something that can be justified when it's in, in, the, in the cause of social progress. Until he travels to Paris a little bit later on and finds, an, and he goes to witness an execution. And what he writes is this, the sight of an execution revealed to me the precariousness of my superstition in progress. When I saw the heads being separated from the bodies and heard them thump one after the next into the box, I understood, and not just with my intellect, but with my whole being, that no theories of progress could justify this crime. I realized that even if every single person since the day of creation had according to whatever theory found this necessary, I knew that it was unnecessary and wrong. And therefore that judgments on what is good and necessary must not be based on progress, but on the instincts of my own soul. So why do I bring this up? I mean, this is a case where, I've, I've described earlier that emotions can come into play and guide us when we don't already possess principles that tell us what to think ethically about a situation. But this Tolstoy example illustrates that we can also use our emotions to test the principles that we believe beforehand. So Tolstoy believes capital punishment is permissible if it kind of has a net benefit on on the progress of, of the world or of human society but then he witnesses the emotion uh, he witnesses an execution firsthand and i would argue that what's what's going to be happening there is he's going to be having a really intense emotional experience he's going to be experiencing horror revulsion disgust um a whole mix of different emotions and as i said before experiencing an emotion makes it kind of seem to you that things have a certain ethical status so He's experiencing horror. He's going to be therefore experiencing this execution as something aversive. He's fe- he's experiencing repulsion. So he's therefore going to be in the midst of that experience. He's going to be experiencing execution as something that's that's repulsive and should be stopped. Maybe something that's forbidden. And And what he describes himself as doing is kind of taking on board the impression that those emotions are giving him forming the belief that this execution is, is, it's not as if it's kind of like up for grabs and we just need to tot up whether this really did help social progress in order to figure out that whether this is right or wrong. Rather he's, he's having this on the basis of this intense emotional experience coming to believe that execution is inherently wrong. And that leads him to revise his principles. So he, he stops believing in this theory on which kind of individual human beings can just be chewed up into a pulp under the you know in in the in in the jaws of 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 relentless social progress and he moves to a, a more well as he describes it he he abandons his superstition in progress and he comes to know that you should use your instincts instead of this theory of progress now anyone who's read the story will know that's not the end of tolstoy's intellectual journey but but yeah i think it really interestingly shows that we can use our emotional experiences to test and sometimes overturn the principles that we've believed before.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a really powerful example. I mean, it's such a it's such a visceral image that Tolstoy has passed down the generations. There, the the head thumping <laughs> into the you know you you feel yourself having something of an emotional experience just reading it or or hearing it. But again, I I have this kind of conflict within me. I think so much is to do with the presentation, right? And one wonders if this had been a cyanide pill or something, right? Would it have provoked the same change within Tolstoy? Maybe it doesn't matter so much to to the theory, right? Maybe sometimes the absence of emotion doesn't prove anything, but I also wonder if, you know, sometimes you could, you know, if if there could be circumstances where you actually feel like, oh, wow, good, that person's been killed, right? You know, yeah. maybe not. Maybe just our emotions aren't rigged up that way. And I've never, never been in such a situation,
1: unfortunately. But I think that's absolutely right. So I think there are going to be times when people experience kind of murderous rage as a result of, I don't know. If someone's family member has been run over, there are a lot of societies in which that's going to lead you to to basically expect the blood of the person that ran them over. So yeah I do I don't think that emotion I'm not kind of pie-eyed about about emotions. like I don't think that they're, they're always going to be leading us in the right direction. and I think that you know it's no easy you know the, this question arises in the Tolstoy case. like he's changed his mind. Has hmm. he changed his mind for better or for the worse? Some mm. people argue that you know he's changed his mind for the worse. We do need to think about you know all we really need to think about is 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 social progress and and anything is is justified. That's that's something that you know a lot of Marxists would think, perhaps in a very different way. A lot of utilitarians would think today that you know if if things really were such that an execution was going to yeah. make, make make people's lives better, then it's justified. Of course, lots of utilitarians would argue that that's just ne- never really going to be the case. There's always, you know, the, the fear of living in a, in a culture where uh, execution is rife is, outweighs any benefits, but sorry, I'm getting a bit sidetracked there. But so, yeah, I do think that there's a genuine question there as to, does Tolstoy's emotion lead him in a better direction or a worse direction? Mm. I don't think it's any easier for us as kind of people reflecting on it to answer that question. Than to answer the so called, so to speak, first order question of whether execution is inherently wrong. But what I want (laughs) to say is if we accept the basic idea that the moral principles we've been brought up to believe, the moral principles we've, or or the moral principles we've stumbled upon through our conversations with our peers or whatever, if we accept that they're going to have their limitations, then. It's a good thing that emotion introduces a kind of instability there. It's a good thing that you've got these two somewhat separate, although mutually informing processes, reasoning from principles and having a more kind of automatic response that's, that's not a product just of what you think, but also of how your emotions have been habituated through experience, to use a term from Aristotle. So yeah, I, I think that in any given case of conf- conflict between a principle and an emotion, it's a difficult task to work out whether someone who trusts the emotion is, is changing their mind for the better or changing their mind for the worse. And I think lots of the time, the principles that we believe should lead us to question the emotion that we have when, mm. we, when we experience it. So I think that emotion is kind of this input to a process in which we should then try and think seriously about what principles should we believe. I do, you know, in the same, you drew the analogy earlier between kind of observation and maybe physics and and the the principles that we would derive from those. So I do think it makes sense to try and use things like uh, inference to the best explanation or inference by induction to say, well, I've, I've, judge this feature to be you know the feature of 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 being an execution to be something that makes an, an action wrong in all these cases and mm-hmm. you know i've gone through all these thought experiments and i've not found any exceptions well then you should kind of you should through these domain general reasoning processes that we use in science and that we use in i don't know cooking, any, anywhere. We, we, we always use inference to the best explanation. We always use analogy. We always use inductive reasoning, which, which is to say generalizing from particular cases. I think we should be using those in ethics too. I think emotions should be our basic input to those. But I think that that, that means that once you've come up with principles based on a load of intuitive judgments based on emotion, if your next emotional experience clashes with the principle, a lot of the time, you should move hmm. with the principle rather than with the emotion. It's, it's a lot like the question in science of when do you trust the theory and when do you trust the observation that clashes with the theory? Right. Sometimes it's going to be an anomaly. Sometimes it's going to be a genuine observation that causes you to overturn the theory. Yeah. There are certain, certain things you can say. Repeat the experiment. If it goes away, then it was an anomaly. But that's actually not good enough because there are lots of cases in which the observation persists, but you still don't want to overturn the theory. Maybe you revise your understanding of the limitations of your equipment. So that's something that's happened a lot in climate science. People have kind of come up with different models of the limitations of, say, satellite data on atmospheric temperature. It's a long and complicated process to figure out whether to trust the quote-unquote observation or the theory. And I think that it's, it's, it's exactly the same in ethics. <coughs> I think that our ability to use emotion is, is a key way in which we can test our principles, but it's never going to be an easy question whether to, to revise the theory or, or, or ignore the emotion.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, re- I really like this, um, this analogy. I mean, there's, there's several features which are nice. Mm. Uh, you know, one is that the theory is obviously built from the observations in mm-hmm. some way, but also the observations are not independent of the theory. You know, in one way, obviously, if you if you if you get a, a false observation, as you say, or a anomalous observation, it may be anomalous. It may be something really important that does and end up causing you to revise the theory. But even the process of observing is, you know, in the kind of term of art of philosophy of science, that is a theory laden activity. Mm-hmm. You bring your theory to the process of, of observing, you know, whether that's your theory of telos- telescopy, if I can say that correctly, or, or just of the rest, you know, of the lens of your eye. <laughs> right. Yeah. And in this case, I, I guess one might say, well, yeah, your emotions can also have been formed to an extent your emotional responses can can have been formed to an extent by culture discussions yeah the framework or theory that you've created already so even those emotions which are sort of the counterpart of observations in this in this case are themselves somewhat dependent on, on the theory and you know this is a problem in the philosophy of science but I don't think it causes us to say, "Oh well, let's just get rid of the whole idea of observation." Right? They're all theory laden. so All yeah, we need yeah. is theory. And 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 here the exactly, you know, it's the same case, right? We, we still these are still a valid input. Perhaps one kind of slight disanalogy I don't know is that principles like do no harm or do the greatest good for the greatest number seem. As we said earlier, almost like axioms rather than theories. The theory is like, oh, well, right. how, do I, how do I reason up from that? How do I infer from that and figure out what in this case is the greatest good for the, the greatest number? Yeah. And therefore we have kind of two very distinct elements. If, if we wanted to have a framework which incorporated both emotions and principles like that, it would seem somewhat different from the kind of physics case where you have, yeah, observations on the one hand and a theory on the other hand. In this kind of ethical case, you seem to have two kinds of observation or two kinds of primitive, the emotions and some some other principles. I, I'm not entirely sure if that is a complete disanalogy or, um, but my question is, I suppose, can those, can we incorporate, can we have a kind of no holds barred sort of ethics where you incorporate both emotions and a principle
1: like greatest good greatest number or do no harm that is really really interesting yes wow lots to think about so yeah so what you're saying is well this axiomatic method in maths is very different from the theory building method in physics on, in the maths case, you you check which axioms seem self-evident and then you try and derive things from those. Mm-hmm. In the physics case, you start with observations and you try to use inference to the best explanation and, and induction to come up with uh, general principles to explain those observations, um, to explain what you know is happening in the world. But in the case of ethics, you're saying we have both There are certain principles that are self-evident and there are certain kind of cases where we quote, where we, so to speak, make an observation by means of emotion. And you're asking, could we combine those two different kind of inputs in order to come up with? Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. And I I think your replaying of what I said is is really um, spot on because it highlights the fact that within physics you can't have a conflict between the observations and the theory. Mm. You can have some anomalous data. You might get a conflict at some point, but that's when you've got to change the theory. But the theory is only a kind of general organization. It's like a compressed version of all those observations, right? You, you you try and write them
1: down in the most succinct way possible, like an algorithm that would generate those observations. That's your theory. Right, right. So you're thinking, yeah, okay, that's really interesting. I mean, one thing to note t- to begin with is that that's not always how people have thought about um, the the principles that you appeal to in, in physics. Yeah. So, um, and, yeah. and, and they're, they're probably right. <laughs> it's a bit of a toy model of physics. But I mean, yeah, it's a bit of, yeah it's
0: only like it's only different from though i mean i do think there is some difference there whereas in principle yeah you set it up to do your best so that there's no conflict between observation and theory whereas in you know there's in principle there's no problem with having axioms moral axioms let's say and emotions that are in conflict and and then yeah, where do we go from there if they are, or or is it just that we we better not try
1: and walk down that path in the first place? Right. Well, so I mean, I do want to return to the fact that that we do always have these conflicts between observations in 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 science and and our and our theories, and we do we do always kind of face that problem of of, of do you alter the theory or do you discount the observation? So you know like way back when Kepler was, was figuring out the the orbits of the planets, he didn't plot perfectly elliptical orbits. There were all kinds of deviations from that because you know, his measuring equipment wasn't perfect. And then also because the planets were obviously exerting gravitational pulls on each other, so the the, the orbits themselves weren't quite elliptical. But so look, there's always this question, like those fluctuations in the data, when do you think they're a further complication to be explained? And when do they think they're essentially Kepler knocking into the table? So I would say that you have exactly the same structure in ethics. Sometimes you're going to have a lovely simple theory. Utilitarianism is, is beautifully simple. You just have one principle. It's hard to apply in practice because so just just for the listener's benefit, so the principle being act in such a way that you that you maximize the the the, the net benefit on people in terms of pleasure or well-being yeah, as as you mentioned, you know you, you then have a lot of difficult questions about you know m- measuring pleasure and figuring and predicting which actions are going to have positive benefits on pleasure and aren't accidentally going to lead to suffering. But it's a very simple theory. The question is what happens where, where when someone suggests a case that really clashes with that theory. So one one classic one, I'm sure your listeners are all really familiar with trolley problem cases, so let's go for something a bit different. There's this case if if it's right to to if, if it's literally the, just the the numbers and the quantities of pleasure and pain that count, well, then it sh- seems like it ought to be right if i'm a doctor and i have five patients who are dying on the operating table and they each happen to need a different organ in order to survive and then someone wanders into my waiting room and they're on their own no one else is around it's the dead of night i ask my nurse to go and you know probe a little bit find out what their life is like oh it turns out that they live a really solitary life no one's going to miss them ooh so i can Save five people and extend their long and happy lives by kidnapping and murdering and harvesting the organs of this this one person. Now, obviously, the this case is is pretty cooked up. It's not going to be something that happens a lot of the time. And a utilitarian who wants to hang on to their theory can really say like, "Well, that that's not a realistic case." But if if their principle is supposed to be be a self evident ethical principle. It's supposed to apply to all possible cases, not just the real world cases. So there, the utilitarian is really pressed to say, "Well, if the case is as it's described, then yes, it would be right to kidnap, and murder, and harvest the organs." I think a lot of us would say w- w- would think like that that that's wrong. That, that there's an oblig, you know, y- you don't have the right to do that to someone. And the fact that we feel that pull. So- is it's is kind of an, an observation that, that clashes with the theory. Now, utilitarians are going to be, uh, they've thought about this problem. So Peter Singer, whom I mentioned earlier, he has an article called Ethics and Intuition, in which he argues that we shouldn't trust our emotions. I think he's wrong. But yeah, he has a view. So he thinks that, yeah, we, we just shouldn't trust our emotions. We should just always disregard what I'm arguing it- serve the role of observations, we should always stick with what he thinks are self-evident principles. I want to say, where are these self-evident principles coming from? Why should we believe them? Why should we be more confident of the theory than of, than of what we think about the particular case? Should I, do I really know this very abstract principle that Singer and other utilitarians are suggesting? better than I know that it would be wrong to kidnap and murder this, this bloke who's stumbled in to the, the waiting room. Yeah, I just want to say why, why believe the principles. You're going to have to have a really compelling story in epistemology if you, of, of how we come to know these principles if, if you're going to convince me that I should trust them more than I trust my judgments about the particular case there. So so I think there's an, uh, th- we, we, we're getting a lot of mileage out of this analogy with science. So here's, so here's one more connection. One of the billions of quotations uh, attributed to Einstein, but this one has, a, I think, some basis in one of his lectures. The pithy version is Einstein said that your theory should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler. Mm. So... Yes, beautiful if you can reduce your theory down to yeah. one principle. But if that means falsifying the complexity that's really there, then y- your quest for simplicity has has gone too far. Yeah. So I want to say, yeah, yeah, really attractive to have just one principle, but only if it can capture what we have reason to think is is the texture of 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 the 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 needs and obligations that structure our lives? yeah,
0: I think there's actually another interesting point about the simplicity example, which is that the idea of simplicity enters into physics as a kind of heuristic, right? And I think that expresses really well what einstein was was saying. And so maybe some of these these things like the greatest good for the greatest number could be useful within a broader framework, but not as the overall guiding, you know, not as the complete theory that arranges all the observations. Because if we buy into uh, your really nice uh, example there, which I think, you know, it's really hard to disagree with. If we buy into that, then it just can't be correct, right? It, It can't be the universal way of Organizing a uh, you know, all that empirical data that we get from emotions, if we have such clear clashes with it, and it can't, it also can't be some kind of separate axiom within the system. But perhaps it could be some kind of heuristic where, you know, all else being equal, right, or something like that, do the greatest good for the for the greatest number, right? If you're not in clash, if there's no clash with other moral knowledge then this can apply yeah it's a really nice uh, trolley problem on the on the subject or oh, not not a trolley problem I mean, it's kind of hospital trolley <laughs> problem <laughs> yeah uh, just thinking of like a gurney here i did have like uh i i i mean it's like a hobby of every person to kind of come up with interest in these things to come up with very as you know, obscure trolley problems, but I do have one sort of variant, but i I kind of feel like it's going to be quite easy to resolve. So you have a kind of burning <laughs> trolley that is either going down one path and it's going to ignite <laughs> a children's teddy bear, a child's teddy bear. <laughs> um, so you know emotionally like that's a te- oh gosh, who wants to see that, right? <laughs> or it goes down another and it just like, you know, there's all this, um, let's call it like, uh, it could be like a big thing of natural gas, right? That's going to explode. It won't, won't Mm -hmm. hurt anyone. It's just going to burn. Maybe it's going to burn slowly for a long time. Okay. But it's going to give off, you know, tons and tons of, of carbon dioxide. Right. I kind of feel like our emotional response really takes us, down the track of, you know, let's burn all that carbon dioxide or all that um, methane and stuff, and our kind of emotional response is probably at the moment incorrect, but as you say, I mean this we can perhaps quite easily explain this with our you know our other beliefs and our other knowledge about the world and, and trying to fit in all our emotions around climate change, well, actually it gives us pause to you know think, oh, actually, that's going to harm. More people. But the other thing that's kind of uh, you know interesting here is is that's a decision where I think the, the right thing actually depends on very broad and distant and complicated things. For example, it depends on the cost of energy and and running direct air capture, right? Because if you have really cheap energy and you've got lots of direct air capture installations, which hopefully we'll have in, I mean realistically a couple of decades. You know we might be in a net carbon negative world, right? Maybe I'm being very optimistic here, but I think there's a there's a chance that that happens um and if we were in that world, um it would you know the ethical you know the correct thing to do in that situation changes and it's it's just i think fascinating to think that the decision that you take, you know, the, the sense data and all these things can be exactly the same. And even many of the, you know, your ethical framework can be the same, but there can just be contingent facts that are different um, and, you know, may maybe very distant contingent facts, let's say, you know, it could be an installation or the economics of something going on in China right? <laughs> that means that all that carbon will get sucked out of the air. I, yeah, I I don't have uh, much of a point here, other than yeah, it's complicated, right? <laughs> um, but Absolutely. yet it doesn't seem in conflict with what you've been saying. I want to say, I came up with the example thinking, oh, I've, I've got one here. This is going to get James right,
1: <laughs> but yeah. now I think it can yeah. fit into your framework. Yeah, no, it's great, and um I hope I hope some listeners could. Like, make us some some nice, nice illustrations of this incredibly meme-worthy trolley problem you've come up with there. So, burning <laughs> Teddy on the one, ch- so there's a child weeping next to the Teddy. I'm guessing, yeah, that's a, yeah, all the maximum heartstring tugging. Yeah, no, that's that's a good that's a good one, and it segues nicely, I think, into some of the more substantive things I've been thinking about the the limitations mm. of our emotions when considered as a sense of ethics, and the impact that. Has in a kind of immensely complicated world of global environmental destruction and pollution. So, yeah, I, I think that, yeah, our emotions are really well kind of evolved and experientially attuned to dealing with the interactions and and choices that we make in kind of small interpersonal situations. Almost everyone, if they see that a certain course of action is going to destroy a child's most loved teddy bear, are going to appreciate emotionally that that is a reason not to take that action, <laughs> to take a different action if, if necessary, uh, if, if, if a different action is available. But our emotions are not going to respond in the same way to the prospect of releasing a load of CO two, unless we've, you know, really been uh, embedding ourselves in kind of the the sorts of conversation and and social inter- inter- interaction that allow us to kind of retune our emotions to to this stuff. So for most of us, like. Action makes child cry, that pushes our buttons, but action releases invisible gas, which sets into motion a chaotic and stochastic process that will increase the likelihood of storms in this part of the world, cholera due to depleted water sources in this part of the world, koala bears being fried in this part of the world.
0: Yeah. Back to the bears. Back but to they're the not bears. actually bears, but
1: yeah, that's true. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> that that's that is an important ethical consideration, yeah. So what what I'm trying to say is that certain processes when they're really for one thing complex, but also when they involve kind of probabilities instead of certainties, when they involve really long time scales instead of the t- time scales that we're used to experiencing the the impact of our actions over when they experience when they involve unknown unspecified people so you know we know that the that that these natural disasters that are going to be made more likely they're going to involve people Mm. but it makes a difference to us emotionally that we don't know who those people are yeah there are many other things we could point to so where we have much more intense emotional reactions to people that we feel to be members of the same group that we are in all sorts of ways and that's incredibly problematic so you know that in that hypothetical or well not very hypothetical in in some kind of you know if there's a wildfire in sri lanka and hundreds of people die you can bet that the dutch newspapers are going to devote Page space to two Dutch tourists dying rather than the, mm. you know so that group membership so I I think that our the way that I like to conceptualize this is that our emotions have lots of blind spots right mm-hmm. our emotions can see really well the ethical significance of things that happen to our near and dear in a concrete way with with sort of nice tidy cause and effect processes but they're kind of blind to a large extent to the ethical significance of things that are abstract, global, probabilistic rather than certain, and outgroup rather than in-group. So yeah, yeah, isn't that a problem for my... You know? I mean, yeah, you, you, you've given us lots of
0: kind of problems to think about. And I mean, I think I, the example of like distance versus closeness it's a really interesting one. It's uh, I'm reminded. I don't know if you've seen it, but there was a study recently where they looked at Republican versus Democrat voting, and they correlated this at quite a granular level. I think it was like zip code level with the kind of donations that those um, that that were made to charity. And you found that in zip codes where it was Republican majority, people were more likely to donate to causes that were geographically closer right to, ah, okay so it's a really and it was it was i think it's like an intuition that many people have that there's a difference between kind of conservative and more progressive political stances in terms of spending money at home versus spending money further afield but it was really yep. fascinating to see that kind of check out um so closely and then of course there's you know the peter singer effective altruist kind of school who are like we've got to have like a kind of flat function in terms of how we weight right across geographical and temporal distance and that Mm. a life a million years from now weight you know is weighted the same as as a life now and i've got to say that that does kind of clash with my emotions but i also feel like there's a reasonable reason a reasonable reason i think there's a good reason to doubt that as well right i think there's so much Uncertainty in the outcome of our actions, that particularly with regard to to distance and time, uh, less so now in space, perhaps more so in the past. Mm -hmm. You know, I have more ability to influence what's going on. I I could I could donate to the operation to to the relief operation for a fire in Sri Lanka, right? Whereas in the past they just didn't have that that option, but nonetheless, like I can't necessarily see the outcome of my donation in the same way that I could see it if I were to support a course more local to home, and I think that is a rational reason to. I don't mean go hyper local. I don't mean ignore more distant problems, particularly given that often you can make more of a impact, you know, per dollar by spending it further afield. But I, I think it's unfair to kind of characterize people as you know being self-centered because they you know they have a kind of preference towards their friends, family and people who are somewhat kind of closer to them.: So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of <laughs> I, I, I think we there's a kind of tug and war, a tug of war rather between again, the emotion and reason and mm. and probably where we end up should we? somewhat in in the middle
1: but knowing exactly where to fall that that's the tricky thing yeah so i mean part of the issue here is is so that there's a big debate at a kind of high level within within ethics within in in the academy that happens under the rubric of the idea of partiality so the idea would be Mm -hmm. is it sometimes ethically permissible To treat people differently on the basis of what kind of relationship you have to them. And theorists, as you mentioned, like Peter Singer and other utilitarians, also certain Kantian theorists hold that we should just be totally impartial. The right thing to do, I mean, there are going to be cases where, yeah, it's just with a better use of our time and resources to help people that are that are close to us, but people's relationships to us shouldn't mm. like don't make a moral difference yeah the, the the other school of thought says that no relations really can certain kinds of ethical partial certain kinds of partiality in your decision making can be ethically um, permissible even ethically obligatory so let's take an example if a parent wasn't giving special consideration to their children right mm. if they really bought the argument. And that everyone should be, you know, everyone just counts as one. And they said, "All right, well, there are children in the world living on less than a dollar a day, and in fact, there are, I think, about four four hundred million, perhaps, mm-hmm. children in the world living on. Well, actually, it's less than two dollars a day now with inflation. But if someone, if someone, kind of really took the argument seriously, and 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 spent their resources on these cost-effective charities rather than getting their children the meeting their children's sort of needs in terms of of food and clothing that that are required for proper functioning in in kind of Western society I, I think we'd think the parent was guilty of child abuse right if if they just had their children living at a, an absolute subsistence level in order to donate all of their all of their surplus income to sorry slightly
0: sorry my, my doorbell has
1: thrown you I think it's slightly slightly <laughs> yes but yeah it's, so so yeah if, if somebody donated all of their surplus income down to the level where the child was really living at this absolute below subsistence level because the extra every extra penny would do more good elsewhere in the world than it would for their their own children we think that was child abuse right We would think that would be ethically wrong. We would think that the, a parent has an ethical obligation to have special concern for their children um, in over like in a they have more obligations to their children merely in virtue of the fact that they are their children than they have to people elsewhere in the world. There are limits. We might think that like lots of parents spoil their children in a way that doesn't actually make their lives any better, and you know, lots of the plastic crap we buy for a our uh, nieces and nephews like doesn't make their lives any better or whatever. And, and maybe we, it, we could just, you know, <laughs> we could use that money in different ways and we could, we could show our love in different ways and, and and give that money to the most needy people if, if that's the trade-off. But yeah, so, so there's this theory, there's a conflict between this impartial view in ethics and what I think is a much more intuitive view that, our, that, you know, you owe it to your friends to give them special attention and consideration and help in a way that's over and above what you owe to certain other people as a result of them being your friend you described that as a conflict between kind of our emotions about the case and and theory and and, and reason but i don't think that's right so i think as i mentioned i i I'd like to think in terms of reasoning rather mm. than than because i think re- yeah. the term reason is a maybe a, a little bit I don't know. It's a little bit too vague for my for my theoretical purposes. No, I think but, you're right. But, reasoning yeah. is a process. There is no
0: place called reason, right? There is no object yeah. <laughs> reason. Whereas yeah. emotions are, are somehow their things, right? Yeah, the, yeah. Reason is things. not really a thing.
1: <laughs> so what I wanted to say, like, the, 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 there's only going to be a conflict between reasoning and emotion if you have kind of preloaded yeah. your your reasoning with with yeah. impartialist premises, and there I want to say. Where are these impartialist premises coming from? what are our grounds for saying that that you know the, the the correct ethical theory should be one in which parents oughtn't give special consideration to their children except for when it's a useful means to some impartially describable end so I, I just I just think we should be testing the impartialist ethical theories against our sense of right and wrong in cases and that leads me to think that certain kinds of ethical partiality are permissible that's not to say i think nepotism is a great thing i think we're often far too partial far too selfish far Mm. too myopic in terms of recognizing the needs of others i am very convinced by the idea that we should be giving much more money to help people meet their basic needs all around the world than than we currently do those of us those of us who live in affluent societies but i don't think i I wouldn't take that all the way to, to a fully impartial level like
0: yeah, and, and maybe the source of that
1: that thought
0: that we could, you know, we we should do our best to um, improve the lives of people in many places is, is not based on this utilitarian principle, but just based again on on well, I've seen how much I, I've had the emotional experience of improving someone's life,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and even if I can't always see that outcome. I can know that it's there if I, if I do it. And I know that's a good thing, right? You have that moral experience in the, in the kind of knowledge bank as it were. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right to call me out on the fact that I was sneakily.
1: Oh, I wasn't (laughs) trying to call you out just to, you know, bring in some distinctions. That's the, that's the,
0: yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think I have, in my mind, you know, I, I keep on coming back to well, you know, this this greatest good greatest number or, or some kind of impartial framework like that seems almost, you know, a priori correct. And yet, I think, you know, there are so many cases that we, so many particular cases that we can find that maybe we just have to abandon that and actually say, yeah, it's it's a good organizing principle some of the time, but it, it just doesn't work all of the time, and we have to trust our emotions at least or at least start i don't want to say we trust them entirely right what's the right way of putting this we don't we don't discount them and i think here is probably worth talking about your kind of concept of defeaters right where let's let's just buy in right and say emotions right they're they're important part important part of how we get Moral knowledge, ethical knowledge, but we know they're infallible. So, how do we make the best use of them, right? Given those two uh, beliefs, uh, how do we make sure that we're making, you know, our emotions are correct or fitting, as it were?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, wh- one thing I quickly want to say to get a little pot shot in so, you mentioned the idea <laughs> that these principles, like the principle of utility, can seem a priori correct. But returning again to our science analogy, the principles of Newtonian physics seemed a priori correct to a lot mm, of good. people. Yeah. Yeah. I did my PhD on, on Kant. He thought that this wasn't something that was just a, 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 a simplifying way of, 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 of uh, in, deriving things from experience. He thought that he could give, that, that it was just a priori self-evident, essentially. Well, he thought there were arguments to get there, but. Yeah, good. But yeah, he, I, he thought right. that this was an a priori unshakable principle. So I want to say something that seems like an a priori unshakable principle. Actually, we should always be testing it against our observations. Yeah. And it, in ethics, that means we should always be going: Why believe this principle? Is the principle something that's derivable from from um, our judgments about the particular cases? Is that should I be revising this principle in order to to deal with the nuances? But yes, then we've got this unavoidable question that you raise: When should I? You know, is there any, is there anything we can do to, to to get further with this question of when to trust emotion? And as you mentioned, so I've I have another pre preprint that I shared with you called "Unreliable Emotions and Ethical Knowledge," and in that paper, I tried to really square up to the fact that human emotions are extremely imperfect when considered as guides to ethics. not just in this blind spot way that I mentioned earlier, it's not just that they kind of fail to reveal things to us that are there. They also often present things in a misleading light. So in the article, I focused on the way in which absolutely random stuff happening in your day, like, you know, did, did you get a puncture on your bike on your way into work? Have you had enough to eat or is your blood sugar dipping low? All this really random stuff, that changes your mood, obviously. And your emotional response to a given situation that you encounter is going to be a function of you know, the ethically relevant features of that situation. Who's helped? Who's harmed? Are promises broken? Are they kept? Are they your friend or are they your enemy? But they're also going to be a function of what mood you happen to be in. And that means that even if this process of habituation that I described earlier has gone well, even if your emotions, you've learned to respond most of the time with outrage to stuff that's wrong and compassion to people needing help and that kind of thing. Even if that's the case, this kind of random noise that gets injected into the system by fluctuations in mood driven by irrelevant shit that that's going to make your emotions uh, unreliable. And what I suggest in the paper is that, yes, this is a real problem. Philosophers should stop shying away from it by just talking about ideally virtuous agents, Mm. as as some people in the literature have done. What we should do instead is really face up to this and think about, well, one way into this is, is to think about how we deal with noisy streams of information elsewhere in our lives. So philosophers talk in epistemology about testimony. That basically just means believing things on the basis of what other people tell you. And that can be verbal or it can be written or whatever. And there are debates about whether we can acquire knowledge through testimony, what the conditions are in which you're justified in believing what someone tells you. The consensus view would be that yes, you you can come to know something simply on the basis of someone telling you that that's that that's the case but of course everyone knows that people talk nonsense some of the time so a lot of the things that other people tell you are, are false either because they didn't know themselves or because they're trying to trick you into buying something or they're just having a joke and you didn't realize that this was a joke so we how do we fit these two things together on the one hand it seems like you can know things by people telling them you otherwise think think about how how little you would know if you yeah. had never trusted what people tell you yeah. you wouldn't even know that there was such a place as luxembourg if you've never been there like you only know that on the basis of someone say so you you wouldn't know i don't know like think about all, all of the animal species that you believe in that you've, you've never seen or that you've seen them, but you weren't in a position to to judge whether they were mem- you know members of that species or whatever I don't know whatever there is just so much even your date of birth, right? you didn't yeah, you, was you didn't have the wherewithal <laughs> to, uh, to 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 know to to you know make a note of 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 what the date was yeah so just the, the, our our every person's knowledge is massively massively dependent on what they know from others. So if we philosophers come up with a skeptical conclusion that you can't know things on the basis of what people tell you, well, that just seems like a really implausible place to go. You're gonna need a really strong argument. But on the other hand, we all want to acknowledge that testimony is very unreliable. Yeah. So how do we how do we square this? How do we reconcile the unreliability of testimony with the idea that we can know things on the basis of testimony? Well, it's because we don't trust everything we're told. People live in these environments where there's lots of falsehoods floating around, but the vast majority of the time, we're fallible but okay at sorting out who is competent, who is sincere as opposed to pulling our leg, who is saying something literal as opposed to metaphorical. We just have through the course of our lives, figured out roughly what some signals are that tip us off that we shouldn't trust the piece of information in question. Mm -hmm. Now, there are exceptions to this. We live in an age of massive polarization. We live in an age of people believing wild things about the shape of the earth and you name it. But that shouldn't blind us to the fact that nevertheless, people are pretty good at not being taken in when when people are you know when when a falsehood is being proclaimed it's highly fallible but we're, but i the picture would be that there is lots of false information floating around but we are able to filter out a lot of that false information by not lending credence to you know stuff that's printed in the newspapers that we've learned are unreliable or mm-hmm. Stuff that people say when they stand to massively financially benefit from uh having us believe some one thing as opposed to another thing. there are so many cases where, without having to think about it, we know to, to double check before just taking this person at their word or do a bit more do a bit more due diligence before we make a make an important decision on the basis of this information. We pick up on cues that kind of defeat our default reason for believing what people tell us that's that's how we might theorize this philosophers talk about defeaters in epistemology we talk about well you're entitled to you, you'd, you'd be justified in believing something on on such and such a piece of evidence you know someone's someone's telling you that it's the case unless that's defeated unless there's some warning hmm. sign around that makes you go, that, that, that that should give you pause i think the same thing can can happen with emotion just as we are all you know just through experience we we learn to 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 tell when someone's being a bit shifty and therefore we shouldn't trust them or we learn to to notice that this is a context where the stakes are really high and the other person stands to benefit financially i've argued that there are things that we that we can notice one thing that that i think we, we can notice that tips us off that we should Double check rather than trusting our emotion is just what we know about the limitations of our emotions. So if you've learned through hard experience that sometimes people get really irritable when they haven't eaten for, for many hours, well then, when you start to feel outrage, you know the fact that your partner has left a plate in the sink and hasn't washed it up again you feel outraged. So it kind of seems to you as if they've done something wrong. They've, they've violated the the expectations of, of proper conduct or whatever. But you realize that, hang on a second, you haven't had anything to eat. Well, then that's one of these mundane signals that should tip us off that maybe we shouldn't fully believe what our emotions are telling us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, re- I really like some of the other examples you you have as well
0: of one that sticks in my head is negative meta emotions. Partly, partly because that's quite a cool label. <laughs> so emotions directed at your emotions. So you might feel ashamed of feeling angry, right? Yeah. Because and that could tip you off that your anger is not, not really
1: justified.
0: On a related point, I I wonder, again, we're buying into this. Let's go with You know, let's go with emotions being an input to knowledge. Should we become more attuned to other forms of emotion? One that comes to my head is like mono no aware, if I say that correctly, you know, this Japanese idea of kind of transience, the passing of things. And where you are in, I mean, there's a whole list of, you can find on the internet great lists of supposedly untranslatable emotions. Should we try to? I, I don't think they are entirely untranslatable. I think just untranslatable in the sense of you don't. We don't have a single word many times for these things. But mm. there's still there's still things that we we experience. I think having a word or a a category for such things. You know, mono no I suppose, is kind of similar to or perhaps, but slightly different. Having an appreciation of those things. Uh, and having a greater kind of emotional repertoire, perhaps, could that could that help us be better people? I mean, in, in this case, it seems like that's a useful emotion to have in a time of climate crisis, right? And, and maybe it would help with my, you know, maybe our emotional response to the burning of the coal <laughs> or the, what is it, the, the gas in my rather, yeah research a trolley problem you know that might have actually helped us develop a different kind of emotional
1: appreciation of of, of that situation yeah i'm not sure but yeah I i so i definitely think that because our emotions can our emotional dispositions can change through 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 experience i think that that's a really fertile way in which society can change for the better so there's, again, this is a case where there's there's a kind of feedback loop and mutual kind of hopefully beneficial effect between our moral theories and the shape of our emotional dispositions, right? So a century ago, a lot of people felt an emotional aversion to interracial relationships. They thought it was disgusting. Mm. For a white person and a black person to hold hands or kiss or be romantically involved, people don't really feel that anymore. So our, our emotions have, have 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 changed over time as a result of dialogue, as a result of coming to see the commonalities between interracial couples and same race couples. Same similar things can be said about the slow and faltering, but real progress in the uh, regarding same sex couples. So I do think that, yeah, our emotional dispositions can change over time. Our positive experience of things can stop us from experiencing negative emotions. Our, you know, often it's on us as individuals or on us as, as, as groups, you know, to, to to really reflect and reframe and kind of regulate those negative emotions that we feel when when we kind of start to suspect that they're not serving us well. Hmm. And yeah, you you also mentioned the possibility of cultivating new kinds of emotion. So that might be something really radical where it's like, almost like seeing a, a color that you've never seen before. You know, David Hume talks about the missing shade of blue. Maybe you've had, this is a totally novel kind of experience, a totally novel, almost like, emotion added to your, your palette of all the different values you can kind of sense, or it might be a kind of fine tuning in of, of an existing emotion. So an example of that would be in Sweden following kind of 2019, there was a lot of public discussion of the idea of flight shame Mm. Mm -hmm. and that this, this wasn't just kind of idle chatter. There was a, there was a marked decline in, in 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 how much people flew, even prior to the onset of the COVID pandemic. Like the number of Swedes taking flights decreased as a result of people cultivating this feel feeling of shame about mm. towards. I would argue the right way of doing it would be you know you've got to be very sensitive to context here. People from an immigrant background, it means a lot more to see your family as opposed mm. to. You know, choosing to go on holiday to Mallorca rather than you know doing a staycation or whatever. Um, there, there's room. For, there's room for nuance here. But yeah, so cultivating an emotion of shame towards um, a kind of luxurious, uh, rather than for a weighty reason, choice to go flying. That that can have a real, I would argue, positive effect on 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 the intuitive sense that that people use to 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 navigate the ethical landscape. Yeah, I think it's a wonderful example, because, again,
0: it's one of these cases where you could have arrived at that conclusion from reasoning on your beliefs. And, and presumably people did, right? That's how they cultivated that sense of shame. In fact, they, they they looked at other beliefs they had about what was right and wrong, and they came to the conclusion that it was wrong to fly. And, and I think many people, you know, or better not to fly, let's put it like that. Many people would agree with that, but unless you have the emotion that goes with it, it can be very difficult to act on it. Mm -hmm. So, in a sense, I think regardless of whether one thinks that, you know, or what priority one puts on emotional emotions as a guide to moral knowledge, they are the gateway to most of our behavior. If not all of it. Right? we might we might like to think that there's some of our behavior, which is completely unemotional, but maybe we're just kidding ourselves. So, yeah, I think, in a certain sense, you know, even if people don't agree with everything, right of, of, of this framework, I, I think that's one that one can't deny that for most people, emotions are the way that things get done. The other thing I like about this is that, You know, even if one wanted to say, "Actually, no, I just want to reason more from some other first principles, which I think are really important." Right? Again, like on a you know on a daily basis, you're not going to get that much done. (laughs) Like, there's there's you know for all the small decisions that you take, but even some of the larger ones, you just don't have the time, patience, or even cognitive abilities to kind of crank through some of the kind of moral decisions that we that we'd like to take. And I think we kind of do need to get stuff done. So there might actually be just an argument for, well, sometimes we can get sometimes we might not get it right with our emotions, right? Sometimes we might not be as watchful as as we should be, or we might act on things where we have we're a little bit hungry, we have this needling feeling of devout but that can be okay because we we do <laughs> we do need to get stuff done and oftentimes they might lead us to the right decision yeah i i do um we're running out of time so it's maybe unfair of me to come up with throw another spanner into the works but i'm going to do it anyway because it might be something that other people are kind of like wondering there's one kind of there's one final thing that gives me a little bit of pause to really buy into this emotional framework and it's our emotions have probably primarily been generated by lots of evolutionary processes and there's some cultural stuff going on there and there's some really clever and high level things like the flight chaining is just a a wonderful example where we're kind of overriding you know other like earlier ways that earlier emotions that we might've had towards flying. We might've found it great, fun, brilliant going on holiday. And, and, and we're able through very complicated process of reasoning based on other principles and and so forth, some of which may have been derived from other emotional experiences to, to affect our emotions. Nonetheless, I think a lot of what we feel emotionally will, will have been evolutionary mediated. And, you know, there's really Mm. kind of, simple toy examples of that, like, you know, we feel a lot more empathy for, you know, probably dolls or teddy bears, which have big wide eyes and are fluffy than maybe even real animals, which are scaly and, you know, slimy or whatever, right? And that shouldn't be the case. And I just wonder, you know, could this all be so infused with emotion? evolutionary uh, concerns, right? The concerns just to propagate our own genes. Again, I'm having a very toy (laughs) and like basic description of of what evolution does. But is that a problem for this framework or is it
1: just something that it can work with nonetheless? That's an interesting and massive... (laughs) kettle of fish. But yes, so this is a big topic in moral epistemology. So the, the the field of people thinking about, is there such a thing as ethical knowledge? So people talk about evolutionary debunking arguments. And those are arguments starting from what you've said, that our capacities result from evolution. And trying to use that as material to argue that, yeah, maybe moral knowledge isn't possible or, 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 or something like that. So one thing to point out is that every aspect of our minds is some mix of biological evolution and cultural shaping that's that's it what el- like, what else is there unless you think there's some kind of like divine influence you're going to think that every aspect of our minds is is a mixture of evolutionary uh, evolutionarily derived kind of starting points and the 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 fine tuning or further development of those that occurs in the course of our lives right so could should we should we be worried that the things that all that seem like mathematical truths (laughs) to all of us that we shouldn't believe those anymore because well evolution doesn't care whether we believe um whether when we're multiplying two four-digit numbers together, we uh, we get the right answer or the wrong answer, evolution is what's shaped shaped our sense of, of of which which processes to trust. There, so so should we should this lead us to be be sceptical of our mathematical abilities? I think that sounds crazy, and I think that like sometimes, yeah, I can get into the spirit of of, of feeling a certain sceptical vertigo when faced with these arguments. But yeah, I don't think the fact that a cognitive capacity, a mental capacity stems from evolution is a reason not to trust that capacity. Evolution has equipped us with lots of different mental capacities that work great. A lot of them work great for domains that don't have any direct applicability to increasing survival, like the, the case of abstract maths or you know our ability to i don't know to to remember specific episodes from from the far far distant past like we don't only remember things that are really like useful for our survival so i think that, that there's lots of capacities and the very fact that, that the mere fact that they're evolved like so look, i i'm being a little bit rhetorical here but i think there's a lot more work to be done if you're going to turn this into an argument against trusting emotions for, for for let me just summarize the two reasons one reason is why is it a problem for emotions rather than for everything else? And the other thing is, well, why is it a problem in the first place? Why why should the fact that something has is is shaped through evolution be a reason to mistrust it? Yeah,
0: yeah. No, I think those are very good responses. And I mean, I think the second point is one would undermine everything, right? By by trying to 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 dispute that, and I think that would be that would be a mistake. I, There may be differences between the faculties of reasoning where evolution has quite clear, probably, interest, if that's the right way of characterizing evolution, Mm -hmm. which it isn't. But one can see why evolution would produce faculties of reasoning that uh, more or less get you to the correct knowledge of the physical world. The question is, is the same true does evolution produce an emotional faculties that get you to the correct knowledge of the moral world and yeah i I'm, I'm not sure i mean but but i think yeah you're right like to say well why shouldn't it right if if we if we're happy with the one why can't be be happy with the other but i think you're right to split split out those
1: two two questions yeah one thing to bear in mind as well is that when we make that judgement that evolution has equipped us with, you know, reasoning skills or a visual system that reliably gets us to the right answer, we're having to rely on the understanding of what the world is like that we've formed using those very capacities right. in order to judge whether evolution has given us a, a reliable or unreliable set of reasoning skills or, or, or visual abilities. so if you're yeah. unless you're using a double standard that suggests that the right approach here in the ethical case should be to unfortunately have to start out from our you know our our best understanding of of which things really are right and which things really are wrong that is shaped by the capacities we have because we can't come up with a best understanding apart from by using those capacities yeah and then sort of check in that way so i'm i'm all up for that i'm all up for reflectively scrutinizing making our developing our best understanding of of what we think is genuinely right and what we think is genuine, is is wrong and then kind of holding up our best understanding of the human mind against that and going all right well there's a limitation here and that's what i've been doing yeah. you know by by the very claim that our emotions are limited in that we don't have strong emotional responses to the needs of outgroup members, that's a conclusion that you can only get to by kind of doing this slightly circular, but hopefully virtuous circle process yeah. of, of using the tools you've, you've got, come up with the best understanding you've got of, of the thing in question, namely what's right and wrong, and then use and then just kind of com- comparing that coming up with limitate, you know identifying limitations so yeah. i think that's what we're doing when when we when when vision scientists look at the the evolution of, of the visual system and they characterize it in terms of well when there was this kind of photo receptive nerve forming clusters in this thing and then that start, started to be within a little dip and that was useful because it allowed us to figure out what direction the light was coming from like We're really relying on a lot of non-trivial assumptions about what the, the external world is like, and what geometry is like, and, and how light moves, in order to say, well, in that case, evolution led us in, in the right direction.
0: Hmm.
1: And that's fine. That's, that's totally legitimate, But because what else can you do? You have to use our best scientific understanding of what the world is really like in order to judge whether evolution has equipped us with a good visual system or not. Yeah. Similarly, I would argue we have to use our best understanding of which things are really right and which things are really wrong in order to judge whether evolution has equipped us with, with a good emotional sense of what's what's right and wrong. It's, yeah. it's circular, but it's not viciously circular. That's, that's, that's what I would hope.
0: Yeah, I think so. I, there's probably a role for the inference of the best explanation here in, in, in both cases as, as well. You know, The reason... Why, or you know, one justification for believing that evolution has equipped us well um, for kind of finding physical facts about the world is it's just the best explanation of why our theories just keep on seeming to tell us things that we expect to see right ahead of time, and 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 that you know would be spooky if it if it wasn't. But one can probably run that same argument for the way that our emotions seem to. Keep leading us towards the right decisions, apart from in certain contexts where we might have good reason to distrust our emotion. Yeah, I, I, I apologize for dropping this kind of. It's a bit like mentioning Hitler in an essay. It's something you're never supposed <laughs> to do. Probably, like evolution is just one of those things where <laughs> it's like no, a, far, far like, from it. Job.
1: It's it's a it's a really interesting <laughs> topic, and there there have been some really good papers, kind of. Back and forth on this in the last in the last few few years, so um, I really like Andreas Mogensen's uh, work. So he's he's a researcher in Oxford and he's uh, involved with the Future of Humanity Institute, who've been producing a lot of these long termist ideas. But his uh, doctoral work was was on this very question of whether evolution undermines ethics, and uh, he's I like his work because he's he, he's one of these people who does philosophy with a scalpel. He and really
0: would you say he's a consequentialist or
1: he's he's not actually so he no? describes himself okay. as a de- deontologist so he okay. Put him in the lo- bucket because he was at the yeah, yeah the long term <laughs> Institute. <laughs> no so 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 andreas mogensen he he thinks that it's really important to act in a way that that helps others but he thinks that there are other ethical considerations so it's okay. like it's a more kind of pluralist view of what the principles are he doesn't think with with the utilitarians that that there's there's only one ethical principle, and that's to act in a way that maximizes net benefit in terms right. of pleasure. He thinks there is a range of different principles, but he he just thinks that you know a, that a lot of the time the the main thing that we need to be doing is helping others, and therefore he agrees with a lot of what the what the what the right utilitarians say. He right. just he just thinks that there, there's all kinds of stuff that could override that, but a lot of the time. It, it isn't overridden by anything else.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's hard to argue with that heuristic. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been really fascinating. I feel like I've taken us over time a bit by <laughs> trying to close off every objection that one might have about this. But I think it's been fun. Great, it's been fun. Yeah, you've done a great job of, yeah, I think really arguing for the, the cogency of, of this. And as I mentioned earlier, I think it's really refreshing to be able to Pay a bit more attention to one's emotions and uh, not feel guilty about that. There's a negative matter of emotion. Thank you so much, James. I don't know if you have any final things you'd like to add, advice for
1: life. Advice for life. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have. I don't have so much of that. But but yeah. So if if anyone wants to to contact me about my work, all of the ideas I've been mentioning are work in progress, and I'm and and you know partly in the sense that these are preprints that we've been discussing for the most part, and partly in the sense that, yeah, I I don't think I've come to my final philosophical view. So if if anyone does want to contact me, um, if you Google James Hutton, and I'm now at Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. So if you Google James Hutton, Delft University of Technology, I'm sure you'll be able to find my profile and I'd be very happy to speak to anyone that wants to drop me an email about any of this stuff. But thank you so much for having me on the podcast, James.
0: Thanks. It's it's been great. Thank you.